Half a billion dollars for wildfire prevention here in California. Sounds like a lot of money. But is it really? Last year, the state spent more than $2 billion fighting those fires, with more than $10 billion in property damage. And vaccine equity issues are now front and center in the COVID response. But why'd it take so long for them to get there? Welcome to California State of Mind from Cal Matters and CAP Radio. I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento. And I'm Elizabeth Aguilera in Los Angeles. So, Nicole, I have to bring up a story from my colleague, Laura Rosenhall. She got her hands on a database that listed elected officials, state judges, and others who owe the state fines for late campaign filings, as in $2 million in fines. Yeah, this it's crazy because the state sends letters to notify these officials of their fines, but it doesn't do anything more than that to collect on them. And a lot of these signs are small, like the assembly speaker, Anthony Rendon, owes like 90 bucks. But some of these are huge. There's an Alameda County judge who owes $38,000. Like, what? What? (laughs) (laughs) And these are the folks who make the rules for all the rest of us. So they just don't have to pay them if they ignore their letters. But the new secretary of state says she's looking into this. This stood out to me because, you know, we can't get away with that, right? Even if it's just a parking ticket. (laughs) Right. Cities and counties definitely know how to find all of us. And those (laughs) fines double and triple if you don't do anything about it. Right. Well, let's bring Emily Hoven into the conversation here. Emily writes the What Matters daily newsletter for Cal Matters, which means she is up to speed on pretty much everything going on here in California. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. I love being here. Well, Emily, California is gearing up for a hot and dry summer, and Governor Newsom this week signed legislation that will allocate more than half a billion dollars to wildfire prevention. But is that going to be enough to stave off this devastation like we've seen the past few years? I mean, 2020 naturally made the record books as the largest wildfire season in California's modern history. So is half a billion dollars enough? I think the resounding response from the vast majority of lawmakers is it's not. And I kept hearing the phrase a Band-Aid on a gaping wound where, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's a drop in the bucket. You know, something is better than nothing. But at the end of the day, the problem is so large and it's been going on for so long that it's almost impossible to think of like a dollar amount that could actually, you know, really resolve the problem. Is it a problem that can actually even be resolved? You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of just part of the condition of California. Obviously, things are getting worse with climate change and there's looks like there's going to be a drought on the horizon. But yeah, it's hard to think of a dollar figure that would would be enough to to make that go away. That's so interesting. Emily, you said the condition of California. And I think a lot of people mm-hmm. just feel that way because Nicole pointed out it was the largest wildfire season recorded in California's modern history. But it seems like now every year is like the largest one in modern history. And so it's scary to think about what comes next. What I think about is the folks who live in these communities. This money is for prevention. I would be thinking about what if it happens again? What if it happens here? You know, they may lose their home or worse, family members or friends, as we've seen in recent years with entire communities getting decimated by fire. 
Yeah, I agree. And I also feel like 536 million. I actually had some people reach out to me. They're like, where does that number come from? You know, and it's such a large number and it's such a, it's not an even, it's like kind of this weird <laughs> random number and, you, and it's hard to know where it's going to. And people were asking the governor at a recent press conference, you know, can you kind of break down where this is going? And, you know, broadly he was like, oh yeah, you know, there's 200 million for fire breaks and things like that. But it's hard to understand, you know, how much is, is each county getting? How much is each city getting? How much is each fire? department getting. So these numbers are really abstract. And as you were had in a recent story, Elizabeth, allocating money is just the tip of the iceberg. Do you know what I mean? And actually getting it into the hands of the people that need it the most through all of these various distribution channels can be a really big challenge. I want to hear more about that, Elizabeth, and the story you did about money and childcare, right? Actually, a few of my last stories have been about childcare. Even before the pandemic, childcare was something that was considered to be in a precarious situation. So there wasn't enough slots. There's never enough money. It's expensive for families to try to get every childcare place. People will say they have a waiting list. Then the pandemic came along, and that really, really has impacted the childcare providers. You know, at the beginning, many of them closed to sanitize and clean. Then a lot of increased costs or the kids weren't coming. So some of the private centers closed completely or closed for a while. And then parents didn't know what to do. You know, essential workers still needed care for their children. And so there was some help from the state for that. But I've just heard from so many providers who talk about how much more expensive it got. And then a lot of them took on virtual learning because they started caring for kids who would typically be at school and only come to see them after school. So they had to boost Mm -hmm. their Wi-Fi or hire someone to help the kids get online. So in February, Governor Newsom promised these stipends, $525 per child, who are subsidized by the state. So if you were caring for subsidized children back in November, you'd get this $525 per child. And so far, the providers have not received that money yet. So that's what you're uh, alluding to, Emily, in terms of the Mm -hmm. allocation, right? They make these announcements and the providers have gotten emails like, when is that money coming? I need it. I've maxed (laughs) out my credit cards or decimated my savings and I need it so that I can keep my business open. And so there's a lot of concern from them about this money. The state does say it is coming by the end of April or by mid-May, which is a couple of months after it was announced. But for many of them, you know, they're right on the brink of trying to decide whether they can keep going, which, as we know, the economy is going to reopen in June, supposedly, hopefully, if everything keeps going the way it's supposed to. (laughs) And a lot of people are saying once that happens and people really need to get back to work or childcare, go back to the office, it's really going to be noticeable that there are not as many childcare providers as there was even just last year. Well, I'm really interested in this delay in announcing the money and getting it out there. And I wonder, because I'm newer to California, I've been here just over a year, is this just the bureaucracy of this massive state government or is this something else? That's a really good question, Nicole, and not sure the state has really explained that. I mean, they've told me, you know, they got the money from the federal government because that's where this money came from in early February. And then the governor made this announcement in late February. Then it has to go to these departments, the Department of Education and the Department of Social Services, who then have to process these, figure out who's getting the money. It goes to local contractors. So there's all these groups and organizations that have to be passed through. The local contractors hopefully should be getting those checks in the next 
next week. I was told they went out this week. And then those folks actually cut checks or direct deposit to the actual childcare provider. So there's like four layers. Totally. And it also makes me think just like the red tape of all of it and the confusion of the different agencies. There was a recent state audit that found that California had allocated $2.7 billion for affordable housing, but then it ended up literally not using a single dollar of that because it was like split between Mm. nine different agencies and they missed deadlines and there was all this weird Mm -hmm. paperwork stuff going on. And for me, it really raises the question of does the government have infrastructure in place to handle all of this, given that a lot of these systems seem to be straining right now? Emily, anything else you're monitoring up here in Sacramento with the legislature, anything like that? Well, there are some interesting bills going on in the legislature. So this week, actually, there was a bill to ban fracking, which the governor wanted to have happen when he had this announcement a couple I don't even know when it was anymore because time is running together. <laughs> but at some in point September, recently, I think. yeah, he was, you know, uh, wanting to ban gas cars eventually. He also asked lawmakers to send him a bill that would ban fracking. Um, but recently that kind of became controversial for him because he's facing this potential recall effort. So banning fracking, which has a lot of, you know, good paying jobs, mm-hmm. um, oil industry things of that nature would be complicated for him to back that. Um, but actually this week, the bill did not even make it out of its first committee. So it's likely dead, basically, unless other components get taken up elsewhere. So that's one political battle the governor probably won't have to fight this year, which is probably a godsend for him in some respects mm-hmm. and didn't even make it to a full floor vote. It's interesting that you bring that back to the recall and say this could be a blessing in disguise for him, because even though this is a defeat in some ways, it just puts off having to fight this battle that could get really messy with a recall. The recall runs through so many things he's had to deal with, right, including this idea of capacity limits on places of worship and churches. Tell me about that, Emily. Didn't something happen this week? Yeah. So basically, um, places of worship have won a lot of recent battles against the governor. So late last week, the U.S. Supreme Court basically overturned a ban in the state that prohibited, you know, indoor at-home religious gatherings. And so it cleared the way for those to to resume. But then the state this week even went a step further and actually lifted all mandatory capacity limits on places of worship, which makes them the first sites in the entire state to be able to reopen at full capacity if they if they choose to do so. The churches have really been a major point in this recall battle. One of the very first major donors to the recall campaign was actually a businessman who opposed the governor's um, restrictions on, you know, what he perceived as his religious liberty. And so definitely this has drawn a lot of people who are proponents of the obviously the First Amendment and wanting to be able to go to church and, and worship. And so with these setbacks, I think, uh, you know, the state has kind of had to acknowledge that the rulings in the Supreme Court and roll back some of those restrictions. Well, Emily Hoven, thank you so much for coming back on. We appreciate having you. Thanks so much. Coming up, a conversation about vaccine equity with Dr. Manuel Pastor. He's the director of the Equity Research Institute at USC. Stay tuned for more California State of Mind.
It's California State of Mind from Cap Radio and Cal Matters. I'm Nicole Nixon. And I'm Elizabeth Aguilera. So here's a stark snapshot of COVID deaths here in California. White Californians, just over 18,000. Californians of color, nearly 40,000. That's according to the latest number from April 7th on the state's health equity dashboard. Those figures are just one reason behind the ongoing push for equity in vaccine distribution. The call to get shots in arms in the communities that are most in need and at risk. Dr. Manuel Pastor is director of the Equity Research Institute at USC. I asked him how he defines vaccine equity, and he started by giving an example of what it is not. That example, California's initial approach to the rollout. So we're going to make sure that people within a certain age and occupation category have an equal shot at getting a shot as long as they have a computer, high-speed internet, the technological sophistication to put an automatic refresher on their browser, the kind of job that they can take three or four hours off in the middle of the day to chase down an appointment wherever it is, and a car to be able to get to one of the mass vaccination sites that's available. You can see that what that is is equal but not equitable. It's designed to reproduce the current patterns of disadvantage in terms of who's on the wrong side of the digital divide, who's on the wrong side of employment quality, who's on the wrong side of transit independence. And that is not only unfair, it's actually not a rational and sustainable strategy to address the pandemic. Because if you look at where the COVID disease has hit hard, it's been in Black and Latino working class communities. So vaccine equity is about making sure that you recognize the disadvantages that currently exist and try to make sure that you design a vaccine system that can overcome those. A few weeks ago, the governor said that the state would devote 40 percent of all doses to those low income communities that you mentioned. Um, That would be a step toward rectifying that problem. How much of a difference would you say that that 40 percent allocation has made? And is it or will it be enough? That's a good step because it really puts the vaccine where it needs to be, not just for those communities, but for being able to stop the pandemic. And more than that, it actually creates an important incentive because when everyone understands that unless you actually hit those targets, the 40 percent targets, unless you actually also close the uh, positivity rates in testing disparities, you can't open your county. And that begins to give everyone an incentive to pay attention to equity because it means a faster reopening for everyone else. So that was actually a quite a smart idea, which was to make your ability to move to another tier of opening a little more lenient if you were actually meeting equity targets. Now, it sounds like it's a trade-off, But it's not, because if you're meeting equity targets, you're actually targeting the disease where it is and where it's been the most rampant. And that does create the conditions for you to be able to open up more safely. So what else would you like to see happen right now that hasn't yet? So one of the things that I think is really, really critical is to look right now at the issues that might open up over the next couple of weeks and begin to kind of forward position resources in terms of the community clinics, the mobile clinics, and maybe even more stringent targets that go above the 40%. But there's another thing, which is a lesson I think that we can pull away from what happened. What we need to do now is to take what we've learned and start to think 
three or four months ahead at the damage that will have been done and what we need to repair. For example, we've been noticing in the school reopenings that parents that are uh, from black and brown communities, from working class and low income communities are far more reluctant to send their kids back to school because of the way that their communities have been ravaged by COVID. We are gonna have to make sure that we forward position resources to make sure that we've got summer school classes and tutors and learning opportunities for those children. You touched on this, that inequity was an issue that a lot of people, including you, saw coming from a mile away, you know, if not several months. Why do you think it still became such a glaring problem? Was it just that the entire rollout was chaotic? Like, why do you think equity wasn't a major factor from the beginning of the vaccination effort? I think there are two reasons. The short term is that a sort of worry that we've got a limited amount of vaccine, we need to get it out as rapidly as possible once we're past the health workers and folks that are in uh, nursing homes. And so speed can lead you to say, oh gosh, any other issue like equity is something that you put to the side. But I think that there's a fundamental more uh, long-term issue, which is that we tend to think about equity as something that you do after you've actually rolled out a system, that you create a system and you try to say, well, gosh, how do we make it fair? The problem with that, as we see, is that, in fact, baking equity in at the beginning rather than sprinkling it on afterwards can actually be better for public health and the economy. If we had baked equity in at the beginning, if we had made sure that we were rushing resources to the communities most ravaged by COVID, you got a much better shot of slowing the disease and creating a public health situation that's beneficial to everyone. So I think the really sort of long-term lesson to pull away is that we tend to think about a sort of trade-off between equity and just kind of designing a system so it will work. But in fact, when you bake equity in, you make a system that works better. We need to stop thinking about equity as an afterthought and make it fundamental. So when we talk about emerging from this global crisis, in pretty much every area of society, you hear that we can't wait to get back to normal. But you co-authored a report last year from the Committee for a Greater LA that said going back to normal is not acceptable, especially when it comes to social and economic equity. So what is or should be the new normal, not just for LA, but California and beyond? It's a great question. You're right. We started that report with the title Roadmap to Recovery because we were trying to think about what might be the path out for Los Angeles after COVID. But the deeper we got into it, we recognized that why would you want to recover? Why would you want to go back to a normal that didn't work for so many people? How could we instead reimagine and restructure our economy and society going forward? You know, that means a lot of different things. I think it means uh, first understanding the need to center the struggle against anti-Black racism and understanding how that struggle against anti-Black racism is actually something that's also important to other communities of color as well. We are certainly seeing in the current moment anti-Asian hate take place. In terms of policy, I think there's a couple of things that I think are super crucial. Number one, 
we have to address the housing and homelessness crisis in California. It was a contributor to the disease because of overcrowded housing, and it is a uh, basically a drag on our economic growth because it's hard to grow when people can't live here. And it's actually also a drag on people's quality of life because they can't afford to live in places that are decent and they face the anxiety and risk of eviction at any moment. That's gonna require building more affordable housing. It actually should require beginning to think about public housing, which you can call social housing, community land trusts, and a whole variety of things. It also means trying to think about how do we reboot the economy in a way that lifts up the bottom in terms of workers. It certainly means closing the digital divide. You can't be a full participant in education, the economy, or now even civic life, unless you're digitally connected. Mm -hmm. Some of that means getting the pipes to communities in terms of broadband. Some of that means making sure that people can afford to be able to pay to access uh, broadband. And that's going to require a significant degree of investment. You know, there's lots of reasons to be pessimistic and worried. But I think there's also reasons to be optimistic that we may be turning a corner. Dr. Manuel Pastor, thank you so much for being with us. Good to be with you. So we talked a little bit about that 40% of vaccine supply that's going to lower income communities, but I was checking on the state's vaccine numbers the other day, and these communities are still so far behind. The state's higher income places have fully 1 million more people that are fully vaccinated than the lower income places, even though they're supposed to be getting more vaccines. That's right, Nicole. And my question about the strategy is, you can send the vaccines there, but does the distribution channel actually exist in those communities? Because if not, then they're still scrambling through my turn and other websites to try to get an appointment. So clearly still a lot of work to do there. Yeah. Okay, well, before we go, Elizabeth, I don't know if you're one of the legions of Jeopardy fans out there. (laughs) I have watched a lot of Jeopardy over the years, and I really appreciated Alex Trebek, the host, but I haven't in the last couple of years been keeping up too much with it. Yeah, well, the show's been rotating guest hosts since the legendary Alex Trebek passed away at the end of last year. In the last two weeks, Aaron Rodgers, who's the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, he also went to Cal Berkeley and hails from Chico. He's been hosting. Fantastic game on Jeopardy today and a great final category, astronomy. Here's your clue. As Huygens observed in 1656, a weapon in this constellation contains a nebula, one of a few that can be seen with a naked eye. You have 30 seconds. Good luck. Do you know the answer, Elizabeth? 
Well, I did guess a bow and arrow, but I was wrong. How about you? Yeah, I had to hear the question and like read it on the screen a few times before I even understood it. So I had no idea. (laughs) But anyway, we're mentioning this because, again, Aaron Rodgers is from Chico. And for each day he hosts, the show matches the winner's take and then some and donates that to the charity of his choice which is the North Valley Community Foundation in Chico. And that's the foundation that managed millions of dollars in donations after the campfire tragedy. It is. And in his first week hosting, more than $117,000 went to the organization, with more on the way from this week's winning totals. On the end, Eric Lowe, you come up with the correct response. You put, what is Orion, as in Orion the Hunter, The Orion Nebula is actually in the sword of the hunter. That is the correct response. I don't know, Elizabeth. Sounds like he'd make a pretty good permanent host. Well, he did say he'd consider it as a second career when he's done with football. So we'll see. But in the meantime, go Chico. Another great game today. And because of you all, Jeopardy again is donating $24,000 to the North Valley Community Fund. This money will help small businesses in Northern California get back on their feet. And Elizabeth, you are a dang great host, and we are going to miss you so much in the coming months. I'm going to miss you too, Nicole. I'll be away on maternity leave, but I will definitely be listening to you and Nigel Dwara, who's going to be filling in for me. So exciting. So excited to have Nigel and so excited for you. Good luck with all of the sleepless nights to come and your new adventure. (laughs) Thanks, Nicole. That may be when I get to catch up the most on listening to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Bye, Elizabeth. I'll be thinking of you. Thanks, Nicole. And you have a great summer. California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Tess Figland and produced by Jen Picard. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Margarita Noriega and Chris Bruno are masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong. Nick Miller is editor at Cap Radio and Joe Barr is our chief of content. Dave Lesher is editor at Cal Matters. Our theme song is Melifera Ligustica by Isaac Joel. Make sure you don't miss any episodes. Hit that subscribe button. It's free and you'll get notified every Friday of a new episode. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to California State of Mind. Support for California State of Mind comes in part from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company and from Sutter Health. Sutter Health.